Well, it may be our last episode of the year, but we're here to talk gibberfish, aren't we, Dom? Yep. We have jingled our bells uh, for a couple of days now, and uh, just before the new year starts, I think it's time to just put in our usual best of 2021. If you're new here, and actually looking at the download figures for the last couple of episodes, there are some new people. Uh, shout out to the one guy in Argentina who's downloading episodes. Uh, you lost, sir? What does gibberfish mean in Argentinian? But, like, we have a tradition of doing a best of the year. And we uh, go through just one of each category, like, highlighting something that really stood out to us. We don't do a best or worst of uh, the year, just because, you know, everything's kind of grim already. And we don't like to try to highlight or just kind of shit talk things that have been uh, subpar, other than, you know, the last episode. Um, but we wanted to do a kind of best of 2021, just to highlight things. I think in 2020 we said it was to, you know, highlight the things that got us through quarantine, uh, given the current pandemic. but. Yeah, this is our, our yearly attempt to uh, highlight the best of the best. And I should point out that when I say, like, best of 2021, it's the best thing we saw or read or listened to in 2021. It's not necessarily things that came out in 2021, but we do try to keep it as modern relevant as possible. I mean, one of my best movies of the year could have been a movie from 1970, but I kept it more up to date with something released in the mid-2010s. As per usual, um, I think we start with, like, the lesson we've learned over the course of the year. Dom, do you want to start with yours? My lesson was not to yawn into the microphone. <laughs> you know when you yawn so much, your eyes start watering? Jesus Christ. Yeah, you get that good, like, the beyond 35 degrees angle on the jaw, and you're like, Ugh. And you get the sore jaw, and you're kind of like, you, I wouldn't even end that intro. I just went, oh, we're here to talk to you. <laughs> Did you get the uh, thing where your jaw locks a little bit? I get that sometimes. Oh yeah. It's probably not good. Hurts. Probably a medical no. thing that should get checked out. But... Yeah, probably. So what was your lesson of 2020, or 2021? The whole working from home thing, people were stuck in lockdown, obviously if you're in the, the tourism or sort of catering industry, you can't really work from home. But with the working from home, everyone's stuck at home, you couldn't really escape work, the only thing you had to do was keep working, and because we were working from home, there was this, like the work life started to infiltrate your home life, stuff like wires were getting crossed, people were just working constantly, and studying for my second a unique qualification at home has made me think I just need to keep working I need to keep working and it's not not the greatest work ethic to work constantly unnecessarily and I, I definitely burnt out quite heavily this year to the point where it was questioning life choices I, I'm not going to go back to uni fuck it I'll just pay back the money somehow so yeah I, I just learned take a fucking break uh, but you know take a break with an asterisk like, don't just take a break because you feel like it work hard and don't feel guilty about taking breaks. I like that. Especially the, the work for the break. Earn it. And then don't feel guilty about it afterwards. I mean, there's also a second part to that. It's just do what's, do what's best for you. You need to take the day off. Take the day off. But have you worked your ass off the previous day? Yeah. Play some fucking video games. Shoot some zombies. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I, Shout I, to I, your yeah. neighbour that put up our fucking Christmas decorations two months too early. <laughs> We've been on a call over the course of the last hour, folks. He's brought this up three times. He's seriously it's pissed unacceptable. off. unacceptable. We should maybe clarify the Gibberfish podcast. You people <laughs> are ruining Christmas, right? On you go. I'll, I'll just let you have the floor. You seem unstoppable at this point. Bullshit that people do at Christmas time. I fucking love Christmas, right? I love from about... Because I've been at uni, for the, uni and college for the past while. I love, you know, getting to about the... Between the 15th and the 20th of December and just wrapping everything up. Boosting through a shit ton of Christmas shopping. And just enjoying the Christmas period with family, sitting down, eating way too much food, listening to the 
so many Christmas songs that I deep enjoy in Christmas, right? But there's some dirty motherfuckers out there. Some high shelf, low rent motherfuckers, right? If any no little special feeling that you get at Christmas and just shite all over it. You know who you are and you should feel shame. The <laughs> earliest you're allowed to be if you're earlier than that, you fucked up. And you should feel ashamed of yourself, people. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Now, I agree, the, the official podcast stance of the Jibberish podcast on Christmas is that Christmas Day is a magical time of year, Christmas month can fuck off, <laughs> it is too much, it is too long, and it is too much of a pain in the ass to listen to Mariah Carey all month. Eight Christmas songs, because there are some good Christmas here and that American coffinous rattle is beasting through your, any Christmas radio speakers, it's annoying. Fuck Mariah Carey, man, get a job, just be different. <laughs> I, I asked. Don't, don't just rest on your fucking laurels because you made one Christmas song that people kind of get out of their heads. We asked this in the lab just to figure out what was uh, like. How much money do you think people make off of uh, Christmas number ones? Like Michael Bublé, Mariah Carey, and uh, maybe somebody like oh, somebody like a boy band are always trying to go for that Christmas number one because you know, like they they're set for life once they get it. It gets guaranteed replays hundreds of times a year from thousands of listeners. Just once that December first like shows up on the calendar. Like Paul McCartney, not I mean he was pretty set before he made this song, but when he released simply having a wonderful Christmas time, and that got put into the cult, the cultural zeitgeist, he probably didn't need to make another song because <laughs> he was set for life. People buying licenses for that. I would love to see his like total earnings over the course of the year and just like all of his music versus that one Christmas song. I want to know what the ratio is because. He's probably one of the biggest musicians on the planet, given his part of the Beatles. How yep. much has that affected his earnings, that one Christmas song? Because I guarantee it's a solid double digits percent. But anyway, yeah, we've gotten diverted, as is tradition. So, and... did you know, right, I have to bring this up because we mentioned Paul McCartney, right? <laughs> Paul McCartney, on his uh, album Wonderful Christmas Time, when he released the song, Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time, released a little-known follow-up Christmas song called Rudolph. I'm not making this up, I swear to God, this is 100% true. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reggae. And it's as, <laughs> it's as fucking awful as you think it is, by the way. <laughs> well, 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 we're not doing secret links of the day, but that's going to be it. <laughs> I, I'm going to link you uh, the, the music video while you set up the next bit. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about my lesson for 2021, and that is, I'm going to begin with a confession. I honestly, and on heart, swear that I thought 2021 was going to be better than 2020. I assumed we'd face six months of maybe a little bit of uh, further lockdown restrictions and then after 18 months the pandemic would pass because typically if you look at you know, data from the last couple of pandemics that are on record at least, that's kind of the length of a pandemic is the chance to burn through the population and then we're done. And then we get back to normal life with a few life lessons learned and then we you know, get on with it. Uh, <laughs> you can imagine in olden times, hey, we really shouldn't have eaten that bat. <laughs> so, right, just at the town gathering, hear ye, hear ye, lay off the fucking bats. <laughs> Stop eating them. And uh, I'd like to apologise for my optimism, it won't happen again. Uh, because you're, you're Scottish, you should know better. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've got a big heat. Um... <laughs> We're a pessimistic people. But it's taught me that you basically never know what's going to happen. Even if you take an educated guess, it's just a guess. And we have to make the op most of opportunities that are thrown our way. And to add a little caveat on there, if there are no opportunities being thrown your way, make some opportunities yourself. I feel like we need to be a bit more industrious, more um, self-assertive 
in life because life is not always going to throw you what you want and you can make the most out of bad situations just through sheer self-will. It takes a lot of effort and it is not easy to do but I think that a lot of the people we admire and a lot of people we looked up to and think highly of tend to have a shitty situation and actively pull themselves out of it rather than just kind of wait for fate, destiny or someone else to help them out of the situation. So that's my kind of life lessons to be more self-assertive and make the most of opportunities because they don't often come around and it can be, you know, too late once you realise you've lost an opportunity. I think even now, considering that, I mean, lockdowns might become a thing, a common thing. They probably will be a fairly common thing in the next year. I think you just need to make shit happen. You can't just sit around waiting for things to open up again. You just need to, you know, make it happen. Yeah. So now that we've gotten onto the, uh, we've, we've finished the boring vaccine philosophical part of the podcast. We're sorry about that. Um, we now move on to the the kind of usual bread and butter of the show, which is the kind of media we've consumed. This gives us a chance to talk about our best ofs. Um, we have a few categories here. We have album, movie, we have book, we have series, comic book and manga, and game. Which one would you like to start with, Dom? Uh, I'll go with album because that's always a fairly short category for me because uh, given the amount of podcasts and shit that I listen to, it's not really a lot of podcasts. It's the same three podcasts in circulation. But one of them is Critical Role and it takes up so much of my goddamn time. <laughs> because each episode's about three and a half to four to sometimes five hours and I could be stuck listening to one podcast for weeks at a time if I don't listen to, him, uh, listen to it constantly but this year a project that we both kind of kept an eye on because of uh, one of the, the lead singers involvement was uh, Sion uh, Howard yes. Jones and what's the Tarsted name? I was about to say the wrong name um, quick technical on it would probably google that What's the guy's name? Okay, so the uh, guitarist on the band Scion is Jared Deans. Jared Deans, yeah. He and Howard Jones teamed up and brought us probably a Kill Switch Engage record without being called a Kill Switch Engage record because it's stuff that you could imagine being on a Kill Switch Engage record back when Howard Jones was there. But just, I'd say it's better. It sounds a bit better than the old Kill Switch stuff. It's a bit more modern, and I feel like when you listen to that, it's. Killswitch falls into like a kind of groove where it's the same kind of song, or not the exact same song again, but like I've heard similar songs from multiple albums that are like years apart, whereas all this feels fresh and new and very much based on Jared's ability to just make different sounding music. So what is your, say? let's just say what's your favourite single or track off the album? Um, there's a track, I think it's third or fourth on the list and it's uh, Buried Alive and Wide Awake. Mm, okay. it's, it's not not the heaviest song on the it's, obviously it's a heavy metal record metalcore record it's going to be quite heavy but it's not the like, there's not a lot of screaming in it it's not, it's not a typical metal song but the song about it is just catchy the big hook of the song taking, taking the dog out or something like that and that song comes on and noticeably, noticeably walk a bit faster because it's just like, she's a bit hype and with a 14 year old dog that's not a good thing because he, he likes to walk at a certain speed and if I start blasting the metal like dragging him along, it doesn't. It looks like I'm abusing a dog, which is never a good thing. But <laughs> it is that kind of song where you just kind of like, the hook catches you immediately. Then just even if whatever you're doing becomes suddenly less mundane because you've got awesome track. And the, the album itself doesn't have a title. I'm pretty sure it's just called Self Titled. Yeah, I think it's either Scion or just it, it might be just called Self Titled. Yeah, because I know the uh, 
Sion is Howard Jones' middle name, so self-titled might be a... It's fucking what? <laughs> yeah, his middle name's Sion. I did not know that. Yeah. Hmm. Weird. Okay, I'll, I'll accept it. Move on. Yeah, so what was your favourite record of this year? Uh, mine was Beast in Black, Dark Connection. Um, basically, Beast in Black are normally a fantasy team power metal band, uh, but they decided to go science fiction, uh, inspired by Blade Runner... Um, and then Elite Battle Angel, uh, the anime, not the James Cameron one, and then a more obscure anime that I swear I've never heard of before, Amortage the Third, which is weird, uh, but it's all very kind of science fiction, uh, very weeb-tastic, um, synthy power metal, which is just such a weird combination of styles and blends, but it's it's so fun to listen to. It has that high tempo that I'm used to with Beast in Black. And uh, yeah, if I was looking for like general recommendations, I'd say One Night in Tokyo, and then moon, moon, uh, Moonlight Rendezvous. Totally fucked up the delivery on that one. Yeah, Moonlight Rendezvous. How, why is that hard to say? Fucking hell. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I, with most of Beast in Black stuff, I would say that you have uh, like the great part of Joy that is the, the audio side of things, and then you have the uh, music video side of things, which is awesome. Um, they went really all out on this one. It's not a lot of green screen. Uh, for example, the uh, video for Moonlight Rendezvous, is a lot of like Blade Runner inspired sets, and it's it's got a weird story in the video about like two bounty hunters chasing each other down through the streets of Neo Tokyo, and it's gorgeous. Like it looks really good for like a music video shot by a, a metal band on a label that you know metal doesn't get a lot of love, um, and doesn't get a lot of money. So blowing it all on this one big video is kind of impressive. And then you find out that they've not blown it all in one video because they also made One Night in Tokyo, which is animated in a sixteen bit style. So it's all this like really in like weirdly in-depth animation of like a girl and a guy fleeing through the city on a like on a motorbike uh trying to escape a bunch of aliens that are chasing him down like who the fuck thought of any of this and it's just because these people are absolutely insane although i will give the one recommendation there's another music video for a track on the album called hardcore that is as close to hardcore pornography that youtube will allow (laughs) i'm not joking about that Put that one on at your own risk. Oh, and on top of being a great kind of workout album that's really, again, high intensity, uh, very positive, optimistic, it has two of my favourite covers I've ever heard, and neither of which I saw coming, but I really enjoyed it massively. Uh, the first is a cover of Man of War's Battle Hymn, and what I really like about like old school metal, like uh, Man of War, is that mm-hmm. it has this really, not, I don't want to say shitty like, sound quality and sound production, but there's something about like the limits of what they could do back then that makes it really stand out from what we can do now, where sounds are a lot more richer. I mean, even just think about the fact that my voice right now probably sounds like it's got a lot more depth than, say, if you go listen to like old footage of like BBC Radio from like, back in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. Everything sounds a bit more tinny back then. So you have like that affecting the music, and it comes across a lot in like old thrashional black metal because it is just like people recording with just the shittiest setup you can imagine. I'm pretty sure there's an old black metal album that's recorded with like a cassette player that was plugged, it was literally just like a boombox that had a record function and Mm. it's one of the biggest black metal albums of all time. (laughs) It's just this weird like um, I don't want to say like indie spirit but it's like based on we record our album with whatever we can get our hands on at the time. And then you take that music which is so like impactful and powerful with its shitty sound quality and then hand it to a modern band and especially one like Beast in Black who just live to make 
deep soundscapes where there's like multiple layers of just like deep threaded like the the file for this the editing file for this is probably about 60 tracks wide there is like every single instrument and all these different distortions and different effects like it's woven together from so many different musical threads that when you listen to it on a good set of headphones it becomes this really like deep dense complex sound that just is amazing and i recommend battle him to anyone because it's insane like the lyrics the the concept of just the immortal infantry the the great soldiers the great warriors throughout time uh marching as one through and you're like what the shit are you people smoking that you come up with a song and having it reborn in a modern band is fantastic and then they covered michael jackson of course they did immediately afterwards (laughs) and it's I really don't want to spoil it, but actually based on, like, 2020 uh, and, like, all the political upheaval about Black Lives Matter and police brutality and justice for, like, people being treated by the criminal, like, prosecution system and criminal reform, they went with uh, Michael Jackson's They Don't Care About Us and it is amazing. And I'm impressed by how far this band will go because it's, like, four or five different tones are presented throughout the album and they just nail every single one of them. It's immense and impressive. And uh, we, I got into Beast in Black because they love Berserk, which you know we love. And yeah, we'll be. they actually, you know, they were obviously making this album before the news of Kintaramura's passing, and still were like, I was like, oh, it's a shame we won't get one more kind of farewell to Berserk from the band. But there are a few tracks in there that's um, uh, obviously like a little tribute to Berserk. Uh, Broken Survivors being just heart-wrenching in terms of, uh, like, if you read into it as Berserk, very, very powerful. So, Solid recommendation from me. You said Armitage third there. Stuck out in my head. Yeah. I, I remember where I've uh, heard it before. Brian Cranston is in it. Yeah. Brian, Brian Cranston did a lot of anime voiceover back yeah, in the day. There's a character called Eddie Barrows. It's four episodes long. Hmm. Yeah, I'll give it and a if go. You look, if you look at Brian Cranston's early IMDb, it's stuff like uh, Matt Cross, uh, this Armitage Third, Power Rangers. Uh, he was in Street Fighter Two, the animated movie, as a uh, Fei Long. Right. And knowing who Brian Cranston is, his voice sticks out because <laughs> yeah. it's just uh, anime actor, anime actor. Brian Cranston. Anime- Brian Cranston took a lot of jobs that like not a lot of other people were doing. I think that made him better as an actor. I mean, that's why he's Zordon in the new Power Rangers film. <laughs> Probably because at some point, he knew the actual voice actor for Zordon. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, I mean, it's just, actually, I th- I'm pretty sure I saw um, Matt Cross mention his reference for this, uh, like the album as well. But the, mm-hmm. the guitarist sat down with uh, Napalm Records. It's a short like, YouTube video, just like a social media video for like four minutes, explaining references for the uh, what the band looked at to make this album, because they, they don't quite go in a concept album level like where it's all it's like a story or whatever but they do take influence from uh like anime and manga and he was talking about just different things that came up as like possible sources of reference for a sci-fi album and weirdly enough he tells a story about somebody at a concert because they played in japan being a bunch of fucking weebs they obviously have to go to japan and they were at a concert and a guy like pushed his way at the front of the crowd and handed him a dvd <laughs> and apparently the guy put the dvd uh or the guitarist put the dvd in his like laptop or his player and it was, it was, it was Armitage the Third, which is something he never talked about before, but was already like 
as they were writing the album, a key influence on the band. So somehow this one Japanese guy was just synced in to the band's groove. <laughs> he was like connected with them in a psychic way and just was like, they need DVD of Armitage III. And he gave them a concert. <laughs> like, that's so weird. It's such a weird story, but it's fascinating. Uh, right, where would you like to go next on our recommendations or best of 20? I don't want to spoil it. I'm going to talk about movies. And again, because I'm a picky bastard and because it's our list, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. And I'm going to give you my two recommendations for my movie of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which never came out in 2019, uh, 2021. It came out in home, like, came out in home video in 2021. Came out in 2019 in Japan. And my first recommendation is uh, Lupin the Third the First. All right, interesting. It's a uh, insane 3D animation. Uh, the story is your typical uh, Lupin the Third fashion. He steals something, that thing becomes a, a MacGuffin for a larger plot. In this case, uh, shit you not. They find a diary that's the key to resurrecting the Nazi. Uh, <laughs> Why would you write that down? <laughs> but the film itself is a feast for the eyes. Uh, and the fact that I had to wait so long for this film, you know, doesn't diminish how good the film is. Insane animation. I think you can pick it up on uh, all the anime for about £25. Cheaper if you go for the just bog standard edition. But yeah, uh, Lupin the Third, I would highly recommend you pick that up and watch it because... Uh, it's the original English voice cast that voiced that dubbed the original Lupin the Third anime. Uh, I never said cartoon. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna bleep that out, just so you know. You you do that. I don't want anime Twitter coming after me. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, pick up. Highly recommend it. Uh, and the the next one, uh, my other recommendation that people are probably more likely to go and see, is shocking probably no one but Spider Man No Way Home. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about it in any great detail because I do want people to go and see the film. It's genuinely one. It's the best of the three Spider-Man movies, in my opinion. I'm going to piss off a lot of people when I say this. Better Spider-Man movie than Spider-Man 2. The original run, like from... Yeah, uh, the original Sam Raimi, Raimi Spider-Man 2. Okay, interesting. It, it knows me that I do not like Spider-Man 2. Alfred Molina is by far and away the best part of that film. Tobey Maguire brings in a solid performance. Chris, Kirsten Dunst screeches throughout the entire fucking movie and ruined it for me. <laughs> uh, Harry Osborn, James Franco just becomes a trust fund kid. Just goes, I'll throw money at all my... Yeah, don't like Spider... <laughs> I'm not a massive fan of the original Spider-Man trilogy, except the first one. The first one's alright. Yeah. Uh, in No Way Home, it's kind of... They pegged it as, like, this is Peter Parker's ultimate test. They put him through the fucking ringer in this movie. And it shows that, you know, the friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man has a dark side. That comes out fairly strongly. And there's some shit in this film that they're never going to be able to pull off again. So <laughs> I like to urge you to... It's not going to be on Disney+, Plus because there's not many or any Spider-Man movies on Disney+, Plus, with the exception of the old 90s and the animated stuff that they put out on the Disney Channel. Yeah, I and mean, it, the Sony license thing kind of fucks over Disney+, Plus, but at the same time, it's Disney, so... Yeah, not really a problem. They'll, they'll find ways to make money in other ways. I, I'd highly recommend going to see it at the cinema before your cinema closes its doors. Or uh, the Blu-ray comes out in February or January, I think. So, urge you to go and see this film. It's, uh, probably, it's one of the best Spider-Man films. Even with all the, the references and the nostalgia and the cameos and stuff, there's still enough of a spider, solid Spider-Man film in there that makes it a 
top quality film. Definitely the best Marvel film I've seen this year because Eternals was boring, Shang-Chi was great, but at a certain point you kind of just think, what the fuck am I doing? Right? The, <laughs> why Why am I here? Just to suffer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, the bus scene in Shang-Chi is fucking phenomenal. That bus fight, great. But then there's a point when they're in the mystical mountains and a fucking dragon comes out of the water and Shang-Chi's charging up Kamehameha and you're just sitting there scratching your head going, is going on here. <laughs> but yeah, Spider-Man No Way Home. My recommendation for Well, I'm going to abuse the absolute shit out of the rule that nothing that our best of series has to, like, come from the actual year itself. We do try and keep it relevant, but, uh... Yeah, we try. I'm going to recommend for the year that I, or the movie that I enjoyed the most this year was The Wolf of Wall Street. And that is a Martin Scorsese film with Leonardo DiCaprio as uh, Jordan Belfort. One of the worst human beings possible. He's a 1980s businessman, specifically selling penny stocks, and the entire movie is his kind of life in, uh, like, random scenes played out from just all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll um, that he can, you know, sustain. Like, he is just... I, I, I looked at this movie, like, as you're watching it, you go through a couple of different, um, like, emotions where you're like, oh, he's just out there having a good time, he's making the most of his situation, he never had money, he's getting a ton of money, he's blowing it all on drugs and whores. And then you're like, okay, he doesn't care about the people he's hurting. He is uh, slowly killing his marriage. He is seemingly like trying to alienate all his friends. He is, you know, a, you know, he's a sociopath. And they're like, oh no, he's this is like a suicide run. Like he's gonna just kill himself on on cocaine. He just, you know, you you go through this whole experience of just like almost growing numb to the excess of his life, and it is it is weirdly fantastic. I absolutely fucking love this movie. I watched like I watched it once, sent like a bunch of messages to people who I know like enjoy this type of movie, and I immediately was like, I want to watch it again. And I immediately watched it again, and it is just as funny and fucked up the second time, and just it is, it's very fucked up. There are there are points of this movie that are really, really upsetting in a way. Um, there was a point where, uh, Margot Robbie and Leonardo DiCaprio are fighting over who gets custody of the kid when they inevitably break up. Because he's a mess and a horrible person, and you know this is the third time he's caught syphilis this this year, and he is just you know on he's on the way out, and about to be arrested, investigated by the feds, and all the stress is you know killing the relationship, and there's like scenes of domestic abuse as well that are just really hard to watch, and you're you're thinking about this going oh my god like this is this is nightmarish, and then it it will drag you down into those really low deep like dark parts of someone going through the worst years of their life and then everything outside of that is just this absolute anarchy and chaos you realize they're so used to the absolute chaos and anarchy of you know being constantly high on cocaine and taking your uppers uh to match at the downers they took to you know get through the business meetings and like just the sheer variety of uh horrible things that this you know this character is willing to do to kind of screw everyone else over and make a bit of money is just insane and it's just it's horrible to watch. It's like watching a train wreck, but at the same time, I can't take my eyes off of it. And parts of it are also hilariously funny. There's an entire scene where he and uh, what was the name? Uh, Jonah Hill, um, the yeah. plays a character called Donny Azoff, the, uh, Diamond Donny. Yeah, they are like way down the path of being complete degenerates. The scene where they're high as shit on lemon quaaludes. It's probably one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. 
I did not know Leonardo DiCaprio could do physical comedy. But the scene of him trying to open up the door to his Ferrari while unable to move and referring to it as the cerebral palsy stage of being high on quaaludes is fucking insanely funny. <laughs> it's wrong, it is horrible, but at the same time, I was laughing my ass off to the point where I, I went back and watched the scene again um, to take notes on it, and I just couldn't stop laughing. I, I just went back and watched like a solid 30-minute chunk around that film and realised I need to go back and make notes and do, you know, actual work to get the, the show notes ready, but like, this is just a fantastic movie about horrible people, and I know that is going to rub every, like some people the wrong way. Some people don't want to see movies about bad people, but I, hand on heart, think this is one of the best movies. Ever. I think I've talked, I've spoke about this before. I don't like that film. Uh, I get that there was a lot of Oscar buzz around uh, Leo's performance, and I mean Martin Scorsese is a quote unquote master filmmaker. But yeah, I just got to a certain point and I realized this isn't fun. But that's the whole point of the film. You get to a certain point, and you realize that you know drinks, drugs, parties, having money. It's not meant to be fun, but I think at a certain point you need to kind of see the the shit that they go through. Can I? I mean, I'm I'm going to draw a very shaky parallel between this and Spider Man. But in Spider Man No Way Home, he's used to being, you know, I'll get through this no matter what. You know, I'm going to be the friendly neighborhood Spider Man. Going to be quipping away, you know, fighting bad guys. Then the shit hits the fan, and that's the part you kind of want to pay attention to because it shows you what he's like under pressure, or mm-hmm. when, you know. The proverbial wolves are at the door. That kind of thing. I, I get that. But what I find interesting is that Spider-Man stands for something. He fights for something. Yeah. Jordan Belfort is just there for the money. He is there for yeah, his profit. For and I find that fascinating. Like, what is someone, like, what is an absolute shitty person willing to do to get money? And the answer is, anything. <laughs> and I hate that and love that and love watching it happen, especially when Let's be honest, we all know there's consequences coming for this guy. You know, there is no way you can embezzle or, like, fuck around with that much money and not get screwed over by the FBI. There is always someone coming for you (laughs) at some point or other. And it is, like, it's what I enjoy about the movies. And I say, like, if you don't like this movie, I have no problem with that. Because this is a movie about horrible people doing horrible things. And that will immediately rub people the wrong way. But I, I, I can't help but love a glorious train wreck. Uh, that, is, that is definitely a thing I've noticed on myself over the years. I I love a bit of carnage as long as, you know, if it's fictional carnage, excellent. I can get away with, you know, nothing being wrong. You know, there being no real issues. Like, it's all faked, it's all acted. But then there's the fact that, you know, this is based on a true story. And yeah, there's a real guy. to Jordan Belfort. <laughs> there's a real guy called Jordan Belfort, featured in the credits, going around giving his book tours and saying, you know, I'm in it for... Like here's how I scammed all of Hollywood, you, or scammed all of uh, New York's uh, stock exchange. Here's how you can make all your money yourself. You know, he's out there doing that now because he lived this movie and lived to tell the tale somehow. Um, but yeah, it is yeah, barely. <laughs> I mean, my other close contender for like top movies I saw this year was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Again, a movie about shitty people doing horrible things. Stanley Leonardo DiCaprio. I watched the same movie twice. With slightly different undertones. One was Quentin Tarantino, one was Martin Scorsese. You know, there's different styles there, but it is essentially a very, very similar movie. That's yet another film. That I I was going to say The Suicide Squad was going to be my pick of the movie, or my movie pick for the year, but I haven't 
taking it out of its plastic. Yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of movies like that. I'm not gonna lie. The stack is getting pretty big, and most of them are yeah, shitty yeah. movies. <laughs> I have. Uh, this might be something that I don't know if you're interested in. I have a DVD or I think maybe Blu-ray copy of The Man Who Laughs, which is a movie that's supposed to inspire the Joker. Oh yeah, I, I remember. I think I seen a very very shitty copy of that on YouTube years ago. If you're interested, I'll give you that copy. <laughs> you can have it once I watch it eventually. You know, whenever that is. I mean, nah, I'm not in a massive hurry to <laughs> watch a film that inspired the Joker. <laughs> How about a film about uh, Malaysian warlords killing people? <laughs> that up your alley. <laughs> Seriously, the pile is pretty big and really fucking weird. Uh, right. Nah, I think I'll pass in the Malaysian warlord film. <laughs> I have to for several years. Um, <laughs> um, right, next up. Feel free to pick another category, good sir. Okay, uh, next category, I think we'll... See, I know there's two that I have in mind that I can, I'm going to leave for last because they're, they're the, the ones that I could go on for quite a while about. But I think I'm going to go for book. All right. uh, my best book, or my, my, my best book, holy shit. My best like... book. Wait, teach me learn good English. <laughs> Me speak good English. Me have law degree. Me, uh, <laughs> you are your. Uh, <laughs> me, Dom, Dom. My lord, my lord, what you smell? Ah, <laughs> uh, you're in trouble. Uh, my, favorite, <laughs> uh, my favorite book of 2021 was an unofficial history of uh, Resident Evil, written by a guy called Alex O'Neill, and uh-huh. it's called Itchy Tasty, and because uh, uh, Itchy Tasty is a reference to the very first Resident Evil game where you find a worker's diary, and it details their progression of infection. Starts off just kind of like, oh, I feel really bad, got bitten by someone, and then it's just day two, or like day five, just mark on my neck feels really sore, it's spread. day 12, broken English, you know, a few words, then it's last day, it's just two words, itchy, tasty, because the you know, mutation's finally taking effect. And uh, as someone who likes, or likes is a bit of a loose word, <laughs> but it's not a strong enough word, someone who fucking loves Resident Evil, Someone, uh, someone doing a comprehensive history of Resident Evil, and I think it's about five hundred pages of uh, is the book, maybe less than that. Whoa! Uh, it's something that is very much up my alley. It is a that's less than five hundred. I say about maybe two hundred to three hundred pages, maybe even less than that. I didn't check the word count. I, it was a book that I started two or three times because I took it with me on a trip down to Worcester with my rugby team. We were going to compete in a tournament down there. The first time I tried to read it, I then remembered I had a casework that I needed to do. So I had to put the book away, start doing my casework. Finished all my casework within an hour. It was a nine-hour bus trip. Uh, finished my casework, pulled the book out again, started reading it. And uh, I think I've spoken about the rugby team that I sort of playing coach for. It's a mixed ability rugby team. So there's guys like myself, able-bodied guys, and there's other guys with sort of Down syndrome, other mixed, other uh, mental and physical handicaps. Uh, and the second time I tried to read the book, I got serenaded by a young man with Down syndrome who sang every single one of Adele's songs. I didn't want to interrupt his flawless performance, so I put the book away. Uh, the third time I read the book, I genuinely couldn't put it down because uh, it was just, I, I know that stuff. I I know where you got that stuff from. And just seeing the behind the scenes of Resident Evil was infinitely fascinating to me. The details, it's beginning from... Uh, it's uh, its beginnings where it was a game called Sweet Home, and it was a movie tie-in to a Japanese horror film. 
and then they wanted to continue it because uh, the guy who created the game, Shinji Mikami, who's the kind of godfather of Resident Evil, he wanted to keep it going, but they couldn't get the license for the sequel to do another Sweet Home game. So they thought, well, we've got a good premise here. We've got a good background. How can we take that and translate it into something new? And that's where Resident Evil came in, or Biohazard in Japan. And it uh, details, you know, it's very strong beginning in Resi 1, 2, and 3. The shift, like the monumental shift between RE3 and RE4 and how RE4 was more uh, popular really with the West, so uh, the Europeans and the Americans and stuff like that. It was a bit more popular over here than it was in, in, the, in uh, Japan. But still, you know, selling very well over in Japan as well, but it was a stronger sell over in uh, the UK and the US. Then the downfall that was Resi 5, and then the upturn that was RE7, and how much people loved RE7 in Japan, because, you know... <laughs> it, it goes closer to the roots, but does it discuss RE6? Because you talk about RE5 as being a downturn, but RE6 no, is... No, I, I specifically mentioned RE6 being <laughs> the downturn of the series, because RE5 is a good game, right? RE5 is a good game if you play it with someone else. If you play it solo, and you have to deal with very, very poor Sheva AI, that game could be hell on earth. <laughs> can confirm I've been if I'm yeah, being just, frank just play it with someone you'll have a much better time and you'll realise how much of a fun game that is RE6 you could play that with your best friend I guarantee by the end of it you will hate the game and you might hate your best friend a little bit because <laughs> it's not a pleasant game to play because the story is brain dead to the sense we like how did they expect us to go along with this there's one point we're playing as a Leon S. Kennedy and Helena Harper, his new partner, and you fight a shark somehow through the tunnels of America and end up in the middle of an ocean somewhere, and you fall for a while, depending on how well you do that boss fight. And then you somehow dig through America to get to some kind of weird crypt that you planned it out would leave you in the core of the earth because you just go down for so long. <laughs> I am glad I've never got further than the loading screen of that game now. I've never really played that game beyond the initial first mission being like, this is garbage, what am I doing with my life? Turning it off and going home. I've not played games like a Resident Evil Survivor and stuff, the light gun game and stuff like that. But RE6 was just a kind of... It had Resident Evil on it, it played well to an extent. It played well in the sense that the controls and everything were fine. It just didn't play like a Resident Evil game. It played more like a let's do a Gears of War, but with zombies type of thing, and I wasn't a big fan. Hmm. But it is a Resident Evil game. I do own it on Xbox One and on 360, and I own it on PS4. Uh, I own it pretty much anywhere you can play a Resident Evil game. I think it's on PC. I have it on PC as well. The only one I don't have on PC is RE5, which I, I don't know why that is. But yeah, it is, a, it is an, a Resident Evil game, and I accept it. But I well, I acknowledge it, but I don't accept it. We'll put it that way. And I, uh, this book, uh, if you're a Resident Evil fan, I think you need to own this book. And it is £7 on Amazon for the hardback edition. For yeah. a hardback, and especially. It's, yeah. And if you were lucky enough to get the... Fuck, the Kickstarter backer edition, then you got the, the very cool version of that book, which had the... I think the... Backer edition had a forward by Shinji Mikami and I had a piece by Hideki Kamiya, the guy who made Resident Evil 2. But yeah, you can get the hardback edition 
fairly cheap on Amazon. Are you all a fan of any description that you go out and check out this book? <laughs> we finally don't smart. even fucking edit this out. There's a there's a cyber witch's cyber. I have a replica lancer behind me. I I can just rev the tits out of that thing and just point at them. <laughs> Get them the fuck. I'm trying to talk about books here, man. Get the fuck out of here. So my book of the year actually is activating my trap card that I warned Dom about. At one point we need to segment two parts together because we're going to talk about our favourite book and uh, I need to tie that to my favourite podcast of the year. This probably won't come as much of a surprise to anyone who knows me because uh, I will not shut up about Darren Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast and getting my hands on his book, which is his first book, called The End Is Always Near, is uh, really not a help matters. It's a lot of kind of recycled talking points from his podcast but he's kind of delved more deeply into them. Um, he uses a lot of common anecdotes about you know sacking certain cities, certain military manoeuvres, certain events that have happened in our past, and I, uh, I this was good to finally get those little talking points expanded out into a full. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Dan Carlin has been making his hardcore history podcast for years now, probably about ten years at some point, and has taken time to make about sixty episodes of the main podcast, which are started off as initially like a like fifteen to twenty minute. Uh, like podcast blips about his thoughts on like uh, I think it's like first bit his first podcast would be like Nazi tidbits or um, Alexandria or thoughts on like Winston Churchill or like meandering through the Cold War and it's these little like small hour long podcasts and then you look at the new episodes and the last one I'm pretty sure was at least five and a half hours that covered just the final parts of the uh, Pacific Island uh, or the Pacific conquest of the Japanese Empire by American forces talk more about that in a minute, but it is one of the biggest podcasts in the world, uh, held massively along by Dan Carlin's biggest fan, Joe Rogan, uh, talking about his, uh, the Mongol series for a while, Wrath of the yeah. Cans, and I'm a huge fan of this podcast, got into it because of the Joe Rogan Association and just hearing about the quality of the podcast. Dan Carlin is one of the best uh, storytellers of our time. Hands down, I will accept no other. The time taken to make these podcasts and actually just the way he scripts things out and delivers them, I can't think of anyone else who could do that right now. There are a few that have tried, there are many that have failed, and I guarantee you there are a few out there thinking, I could probably do that. And then when you look into all the work he has to do to make an episode happen, it's insane. Now, Dan Carlin often paints himself as not being a historian, but simply a fan of history, and uses that as a kind of caveat to get out of the inaccuracies or like kind of trimming or twisting of the story he needs to make the story of history work um but i think when it comes to the ancient historian stuff you can kind of give him the leeway to say okay we don't really have that many sources around from the mongol conquest because a they burned a lot of shit and b they censored a lot of shit um so you can't really have the official sources when those sources were either on fire or basic lies to help cover mongolian asses but it does um especially this newer series for the, the Supernova in the East, as it's called, about the Japanese uh, pre-World War Two, actually pre-World War I, uh, coming out of the, uh, like, in, out into the Meiji Restoration and into, like, World War One, the period after that, and then World War Two. you can, he has more sources that so can be more accurate with accounts and what happened and stuff like that, and he can get, actually, access to people who were there, which is fascinating, because he grew up in, you know, in a place surrounded by World War Two veterans, he has more accurate accounts of that. And that helps flavour his storytelling from different time periods. So his more modern stuff is more raw. It features more uh, you know, accurate reports as like from modern militaries that we can understand 
you're not translating from, say, ancient Greek to modern Greek to Latin to English to, you know, modern speak and stuff like that. You know, you're you're getting a more accurate representation of something that just happened, say, 70 years ago as opposed to 700 years ago, which really helps. But it's um, it, it's interesting to see him as a, a storyteller in an audio format, then translate that to the book form. Um, hmm. It's one of the... Uh, one of the best chapters, I think, is The End of the World as They Knew It, which is uh, talking about the Bronze Age collapse around the Mediterranean, which is where basically we have no idea what happened. At some point, one of the highest points of civilization, civilizational development just stopped and it died and it dropped off a fucking cliff 3,000 years ago. And we have no idea what caused it, but you get the chance to run down a top 10 suspects list with uh, Dan Carlin. It's quite interesting. It's a really fun book. And that I really enjoy. It's that kind of. It's not a very dry. I have a few books about like history where it's super dry, technical. It's like we're cross-referencing thirty different reports and original like pre- preserved documents about, uh, you know, the taxes on fish imported from Canada during the early years of the British Empire. It's like, oh, fuck's sake, who cares? You know, a historian cares. Someone who enjoys a, a conversation about history really doesn't. And. That's where that book is set. It is in that kind of market of people who want to know a little bit about history, just so we can maybe learn a few lessons that it could teach us. But I think that it it's, it starts with a lot more grounding, like you know, Dan being as thorough as he is for his podcast, that translates into the book. And many of his notes are little corrections and stuff that it kind of it helps give you a bit more context, you know, and further reading notes really about what you're you're reading. Um, so if you're interested about something that comes up in like his book, you can say, okay, I need to look into this thing, this thing. You get the kind of hint of what you should maybe Google if you want further reading on the subject. So it's quite nice. You but, say that also serves as your podcast recommendation for the year, yeah? Yeah. Um, it's it's a good podcast, but it's just a general hardcore podcast. He is going to offend someone at some point. I'm waiting on it. Um, he has discussions about it's behind like most of his stuff or the old stuff is behind a paywall. You could maybe find it online if you're willing to go at some dodgy sources, but you can get for free uh, his take on the Persian Greek War that includes the last stand of 300. You can get the uh, new side of history uh, as well. You get the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, History of Executions and Public Torture, Julius Caesar's, ugh, fucking hell. <laughs> Julius Caesar's Invasion of Gaul, and again, the Pacific War, um, which is just some of the most heart-wrenching stuff I've ever heard. <laughs> the, the Japanese invasion of basically half the planet and then the American fight, an American, British and Australian fight to take it back is fucking horrific. Especially when the, uh, one thing that gets overlooked is China's contribution to World War Two. Like, there's a lot of shit going on with China and the West right now, but we really do kind of owe a lot of respect to them for what happened during World War Two. And the thing about, like, the rape of Nanking or Nanjing as it's known, I think, at one point, but it was Nanking at the time. Um, one of the worst human atrocities to ever happen. And it happened so recently, like, it's at the same time as the beginnings of the Holocaust, and we just don't know about it in the West. It's one of those horrifying little historical moments that just... It takes someone sitting you down and talking to you like an adult for maybe a couple of hours for you to understand what happened there. And... Dan Carlin does a very good job of doing that. So, yeah, I, I think his take on history is great for conversational uh, history. You know, If you want a more technical, dry, deep dive into it, you can probably find it somewhere. But it's not as interesting or as engaging for someone who's you know an amateur or someone who just 
stumbled into the story, you know, halfway through. It's it's more engaging. So yeah, that's my, my recommendation for a book and a podcast. Um so Dan Carl in the end is always near as a as a book and the hardcore history podcast as a podcast. Do you have a podcast yeah. you'd like to recommend? Yeah, I, I do. Again I've because uh, I'm a, a picky bastard and can't really choose between many things. I have a, a runner up in my, my top pick. A runner up was the uh, fake doctor's real friends podcast with uh, Zach Braff and Donald Faison. Again, I'll, I'll sing the praises of the show Scrubs, better than friends, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> uh, That's not really a competition, to be fair. That is, it's Scrubs all the way for that one. Yeah, no, I've had I've had lengthy conversations with people who do not agree with me. They say that Friends is the best sitcom of all time. It, the entire series could be solved by the invention of a phone, right? <laughs> yeah, hard no on that one. I've seen both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, just basically Zach Braffentoff is on doing what seems to be quite popular nowadays is the rewatch podcast where they uh, take an episode of the show, they break it down, they say, oh, I remember that episode. We uh, we got there at you know, 8 in the morning, You know, this person was directing, we had to do this stunt, that stunt. If they have a guest on, it usually, usually gets quite funny. But uh, I was really listening to a couple of pod- couple of episodes uh, over the past couple of weeks because they did uh, their sort of... Obviously, they're uh, in America for the, for the Christmas period. They'll be doing... They'll have gigs and stuff over there, so they can't really get together and record a podcast. So they're re-releasing old episodes. And I was listening to the episode that they did, one of the first episodes they did with the show's showrunner Bill Lawrence, and Zach Braff literally does the the podcast error of shouting over the guest till they stop talking, and then brings his voice back to a lower tone, and keeps talking after the guest is butted in. And they do that multiple times, and and nowhere does it get more evident. And no less, and nowhere is it worse, and nowhere is it more evident than the episode that they did with uh, uh, Richard Kind. You know who Richard Kind is, right? Character actor. You could name any show in America, and he showed up for at least a couple of episodes. Like he was in Spin City. He was in. Uh, he was in Scrubs for about three or four episodes. Yeah, uh, if you seen his kind, yeah, I immediately googled it and was like, I think I know that name. And maybe the most recent thing I know him out uh, out of is the. It's a word on what John Oliver's last week tonight did a segment about a like uh it's a like somebody responsible for like the opioid epidemic and they're like, Hey, we need somebody to like voice him, uh, voice the, the guy for his like deposition tapes. And he started yeah. off with uh what's his name? Uh his name, Brian Cranston actually, funnily enough. And then they, him back. <laughs> they went to oh somebody from the wire. Uh, Michael Chiklis? No, he wasn't in the wire. Was Michael K. Williams. Alright. He was fucking, like, seriously impressive and actually recently departed, actually, this year. But, uh, yeah, he's seriously intimidated, like, just his sheer menace as he's, like, staring down the camera explaining how he sold, like, drugs to millions of people. Like, oh my god, you evil person. Uh, <laughs> very convincing. But, you know, hey, we don't know if he was actually as cool and calm and collected as it could have been. Let's get this guy in, and it just immediately cuts to... <laughs> immediately cuts to Richard Kind being kind of dorky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. eating a ham sandwich and just being like, I don't know. <laughs> he is the, if you, by his own words, if you need a loud Jewish man, he's there. If you need a loud New York man, he's there. He's, <laughs> he's a character actor. He's, he's showed up, he shows up in damn near anything. He's uh, yeah, in an episode, an episode where Zach and Donald interviewed him, there's one point where it's literally the three of them trying to fight to get to the top spot so that they can speak their bit. And, it's at this point I've used the 15 second button on Spotify and just skipping this. Like, this is horrible <laughs> podcast etiquette. But yeah, unfortunately, uh, but then again, 
I say unfortunately, fake doctor show friends is still a fucking solid podcast and it shows how funny a podcast can be when you just get two people with good chemistry just kind of firing ideas off each other, firing like uh, topics off each other and just generally being very uh, entertaining. But my podcast of the year uh, is The Friendship Onion with uh, Billy Boyd and Don Monaghan because it's just a good time, really. It's just two old mates having a chat. Uh, the only time the show gets bad is when they interview someone, when they have to do something in any kind of official capacity. <laughs> it gets a bit weird, but when it's just the two of them chatting about random stuff, most of them just most of the time they're just checking in with each other, asking each other what they did that day. Of course, talking about Lord of the Rings, they do little segments like they'll bring in, they'll have someone phone in, and they'll do a little quiz with them, or they'll uh, have food stuff sent to them, and they'll try that and rate it live on live on the show. And yeah, it's just one of those like it's not. I get that you like uh, the Hardcore History podcast because it's formative and it's very educational, but there's nothing educational about this. It's just <laughs> literally a good, fun podcast. It's the type of old school two mates podcast that you used to get back in the day that, yeah, has clearly inspired this podcast. Yeah. It was something that was so big for a while and it just became kind of overdone, but I think now that with the pandemic and stuff, you have people yeah. locked down and they're like, what can we actually do? You know, talking about like taking chances, you know, being more uh, opportunistic in a sense. That is something that came out. You had a lot of um, like, uh, mainstream media personalities flocking to new media to do something during the pandemic because everything else was locked down. And, you know, podcasts like, uh, you know, Fake Doctors, Real Friends, and, you know, Friendship Onion, like that type of thing that just kind of... Flourished. Yeah. It flourished during this time. And it's it's interesting. It's fun. It's it's that kind of, uh, like, lifting the curtain of Hollywood and just being like, hey, yeah. here's the real people inside. Or here's something that we can look at from a new angle in terms of what we saw on the big screen. It's fun. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and what I love about podcasting is just the kind of the, the depth of podcasting that you can get. I love the comedy podcast. I love my D&D podcast. But what I'm not a fan of really in podcasting, you get someone who goes, hi, I'm Ballbag. And what I'm going to talk to you today about is my experience with, um, with the dolphin. And I'm not talking about the Miami dolphin. I mean real fucking dolphin. I'm going to interview all my old dolphin friends. Then we're going to get heated. We're going to talk about politics. They don't know about politics. I'm going to fucking ask them anyway. <laughs> like, join me for, you know, my my new podcast about dolphins. <laughs> like, we don't need that podcast. And the amount of, again, listen to Fake Doctors, your friends, and the amount of adverts that you get from iHeartRadio that say, you know, hi, I'm Bill Clinton, and join me on my podcast where we talk to this person, and I'm going to give you my take on this. Well, like, join me, Kanye West, and I'm going to talk to all my favorite musicians and they're going to give me their opinions on this. You've just given me an advert for four podcasts that all could have been the same podcast. But that's not even the funniest part about the adverts that you get on iHeartRadio because I was listening to an episode today of Fake Doctor Show Friends and I shit you not, this is the how the this is how the advert went. Hey, you what do you like listening to? Do you like listening to rock and roll? Do you like listening to pop music? Do you like listening to house music? Do you like listening to soft rock? Do you like listening to classic rock? Do you like listening to electro? Do you like listening to electro country? Well, happy to listen to this. It's very important that you get your vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> it's listing off all these genres. Like, listen to this. Listen to me. Get your vaccine. I do not want to go into the media and vaccinations. For the record, vaccinated yesterday. I get like yeah. my booster vaccination yesterday. Had both main vaccines boosted again. Totally pro vaccine, but fucking Christ, media and the vaccines uh, do not help. <laughs> the whole kind of there's a global conspiracy thing. <laughs> I bring it up because I just think it's so funny how paranoid America is. 
that they need to be lured in be like hey do you like pop music yeah do you like dance music yeah. get vaccinated well, no I don't want to do it <laughs> Uncle Joe says no no Uncle Trump says no Uncle Joe says yes Uncle Trump uh, Uncle Joe says get vaccinated Uncle Trump yeah Uncle, I Uncle Joe says the, get the vaccinated <laughs> Uncle Joe says get... the friendship onion podcast <laughs> Uncle Joe says get vaccinated and stares off the distance for a while <laughs> Ah, sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> oh yeah, such an easy target. Old. <laughs> uh, would you like to pick another category, good sir? Oh, let's go with a comic book because this will be a fairly short one for both of us, I think. Uh, I'm genuinely concerned you might have picked the same thing, but okay, go on. Yeah. I'm genuinely concerned you picked the same thing, but I'm not sure. We haven't. Okay, go for it. Because I know, I think I know what you've picked now. Right, go for it. But uh, no, mine, mine's is a comic book. Uh, mine's is a uh, DC's Halloween event, which was called Deceased. DC, like, with the rest of the word put there. It's ah. a horrible name, but it's a very, very interesting book. And uh, bas- the basic premise of the book is uh, Darkseid thinks he's finally cracked the anti-life equation. But to do it, he needs to, you know, co-op Cyborg and use him as basically a sort of living mother box to create the uh, anti-life equation. And he almost perfects it. Being, you know, Cyborg being a sentient being fucks up and corrupts the anti-life equation. So instead of wiping out life as they know it, it essentially just creates this zombie virus that wafts throughout the DC universe. Huh. And, you know, you see, you see stuff like, you know, what would happen if Superman became a zombie? Oh, shit. That's what, hap- that's what would happen if Superman became a zombie. And, you know, it's just, imagine Dawn of the Dead, but every second or third zombie is a superpowered metahuman. Pretty fucking fun. I mean, I guess if you give the, the zombie virus long enough, it will become the anti-life equation. Like, there's going to be, like, ten people yeah. left that you can probably just hit with, with an axe and you're dealt with. Yeah. And it's also kind of thing that Darkseid's been searching for the anti-life equation for so long that now that he's finally found a version of it, it's bit him in the ass. I mean, minus the fact that you can't kill Darkseid, really. <laughs> unless you find his avatar, which is in like a sub-dimension that you need to have access by being Darkseid to get to. I'm... Which is why Darkseid could kick the shit out of Thanos. Don't even at me. <laughs> it will prove you wrong. I'm curious though, like who are the main characters, who are the survivors that we're rooting for in this? Or is it just Darkseid going, oh, fuck. <laughs> no, the, the, the surviving heroes, is quite, there's quite a few young heroes. Uh, Superman's son survives, John Kent. Uh, Damian Wayne becomes Batman despite the fact that he's about 12. Uh, Jason Todd, he somehow is immune to the virus, which I find pretty funny. And it's something to do with the fact that he was resurrected by the Lazarus Pit. Uh, yeah. And I think Batgirl, Nightwing, like mo- most of the younger members of the Bat family survive. Batman doesn't. Uh, Superman bites it. I think, it, if I remember right, because I, I did read it twice earlier this year, but there's been a lot of shit going on. Uh, Quite a lot of the sidekicks survive, so you've got like your Red Arrow, your Speedies, your Artemises, all them, all them survive. So it's basically just kind of what happens if the enemy is a zombie, and what happens if the enemy is also your mentor who taught you everything. Morbid the curious here. Do the zombies retain their superpowers? Yeah. Ah, shit, because just like human Clark Kent or human, but running around in the Superman costume as a zombie chasing you down the hall would be pretty fucking funny. <laughs> yeah, but they also have zombie physiology, so you can take it Superman a bit easier. Alright, okay. <laughs> but, like, zombie Superman, who can still fly in his laser beams, kind of fucking terrifying. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I'm down for zombie Clark Kent in a Superman costume. <laughs> I can handle that. <laughs> Maybe I need to stop myself from laughing before I throw him off the edge of a cliff. But at the same time, kind of more manageable than zombie Superman with laser beams for eyes. Because that was the thing is like if you put if you have a, a comic book about such a, a weird such a weird situation, having the right heroes there to deal with the situation or to give a good chemistry or a good kind of storyline is key. So the Bat family makes sense. Superman's yep. son makes sense for the big kind of versus Superman moment. But like if you just had like a bunch of randoms, the sidekicks having to overcome the uh the elder members of the family is a bit more impactful than just like a bunch of random people no one's ever heard of. Yeah. Although at the same time just civilians against the Justice League. <laughs> Here's John from accounting <laughs> versus Wonder Woman. It's like, who's he fighting? John Stewart, the Green Lantern? Well, he's fucked. <laughs> John, we hardly knew you. Good, good fucking luck, mate. <laughs> Actually, with the Green the Green Lantern ring is powered by creativity, right? Yeah, will and willpower. Will, but you've got to be able to create something to use the ring. Yeah, roughly. you have imagination. Does it work for a zombie? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I guess still human brain can still fire random synapses and stuff and make stuff happen, but... I'd just be very curious to see how they handle the topic of creativity from Azusa. I mean, all they imagine is brains, <laughs> and they they figure out ways to try and eat brains. So, it still works in that sense. I imagine the top of your head comes off. Oh shit! <laughs> it's just a pop it's noise. A piece of car cutting people's scalps open. That's <laughs> the fucking piece of car. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Ah, right. I guess I got to get to mine then. And this should be no surprise for this. Anyone's listening to the podcast this year, it's berserk. Um, yep. I've been on a, a rampage through the first 22 books of the series that covers up to the end of the Conviction arc but I want to talk about it. I could just say the whole thing and be done mm. um, but I want to talk about a chunk of books um, it is volume 14 to 16 which is commonly referred to as the Lost Children chapter which is part of the Conviction arc it's the beginning of the Conviction arc which is the immediate aftermath of the Eclipse which is the big traumatic event that every Berserk fan knows that ends the Golden Age um, this is the worst moment of anyone's possible life, in which everyone that Guts has ever known dies, uh, he loses everything, including an arm and an eye, and he is left traumatised by seeing everyone he ever loved being ripped to pieces. And this is the beginning of his story of, not quite redemption, because I don't really think it's safe to say Guts redeems himself, didn't really have to redeem himself to be honest, he's just a guy doing a job, but... Yep. This is the beginning of Guts starting to put his life back together again, in some sense of that word, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. never really going to be safe and healed and whole, but he will be someone at the end of the Conviction arc. Um, and this is probably where I'd say I was really interested, because I'd seen the Golden Age arc many times. I'd seen the movies, the animated show, read a bunch of stuff about Berserk before actually digging into the manga itself. And then to actually get to go through that story, in the original format, was cool. It was interesting. There's a lot of little details. There's extra bits and pieces. There's some stuff that was cut for time in the animations, uh, like both the film and the movie. Um, the film and the TV show. And getting to the original format was really, really fun. And I was always impressed by Mura's artwork. Um, I was impressed early on in, like, book one, Guts meets, like, five knights with full body armour. And again, like, drawing a full set of body armour that doesn't look like shit, kind of impressive as it is but then you look at them in detail and you see each one has a little variant like they've got a different little armor piece the visor might be different there may be a tear in the armor itself or 
You know, there's, there's something to make each night a little bit different. Mm. By the end of book 22, you get to see fully drawn armies being ripped apart by demonic nightmares. And if you stop and look at the actual images of each victim, you can see something different. It's still there. That intensity, that quality of work is still there in Mira's work, and it's fantastic. Uh, and then a guy called Zod comes along and puts his skull through, uh, puts his sword through a guy's skull, and that guy's gone. He's gone for the next chapter. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Um, he's just a smudge. <laughs> he's a smudge on Zod's blade, as we all are eventually. Yeah. As we all hoped. <laughs> uh, but the last... Speaking of Berserk, actually, I actually had very kind of profound moment not long ago. Uh, I actually seen one of the deluxe edition volumes. It was volume seven or something. So it's one yeah. you can still easily get. If it was volume one, I would have bought it. <laughs> but these things are fucking big books, right? Yeah. Like imagine thinking the size of a regular book, go big leather bound tome that you see in a library that you have to ask for special permission to look <laughs> at. These things were big motherfuckers. I have a and few had... leather-bound tomes that I want you to just take a look at. Next time you're up, if you're ever up <laughs> due to COVID. Yeah. I've been in a different flat for like two years now. Dom has never been, <laughs> just yeah. due to COVID. COVID but man. I have several leather-bound books that I think are roughly about the scale of these Berserk books, and the idea of owning one of those that's just covered in Berserk would just absolutely fill me with joy. Yeah. Um, but the Lost Children chapter is special because, as I say, it's guts picking himself back up uh, in a post-eclipse world, which is definitely different because you have... Um, the the barrier between the demonic realm and the real world is slightly thinner than it was and you get a little bits and pieces of demonic influence in the normal world so mm. Berserk for like 12 books, 13 books or say 12 books and then the 13th book being the eclipse itself the 12 books have been all about like medieval siege warfare, it's all about brick cities, it's all about hard walls it's all about battering rams heavy armour, swords and stuff, it's crusading knights and armour and it's all very savage, but it's all very linear. And then mm. when you get to book this chapter, like fourteen sixteen, it's about a corrupted version of nature. The Lost Children are a group of not quite elves. I don't want to spoil it, but they look like elves. They're not elves. And Guts working through the mystery of what's really going on here and eventually intervening to try and save some people is part of what makes this interesting because you go from the straight edges of armour and bricks to mirror drawing these curved, like, natural forms like elves and horses and trees and it changes his art style in such a way that it's kind of like a good clear break between everything we knew before then the nightmare of the eclipse and then mm. this other segment of, like, okay, now we have a weird new natural world that's still working on the kind of laws of nature but it's horribly mutated and it's really it's fantastic i mean the idea of just how does a lone swordsman fight a horde of stinging bees in a sense how does that come across and then just seeing mira's art style change and get better and better as he goes on because they say chapter one or book one's impressive book 22 is mind-blowing i can't wait to get to book 40 that's going to be mind-blowing for me i've already seen some snippets and stuff from the later arcs of the show or later arcs of the book and fantastic artwork all the way around. Um, it's clear to see that this is everything, mirror put everything on that paper for you, and it's a gift. I really enjoyed reading my way through what I've got so far. I can't wait to keep going. Yeah, and that that's the thing about Berserk. It, it gets in your head, and you just kind of want to keep getting more and more and more. Uh, 
even watching the show, I haven't, I haven't read the 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 manga. I, I kind of want to, but I'll need to wait until I'm finished uni and shit first. Yeah. Um, These books are waiting for you, buddy. Don't you worry. Yeah. No, I, I genuinely kind of want the the deluxe editions. I will read them cover to cover. I'll be precious about keeping them safe, but I probably will read them. <laughs> I mean, just in general, this year's kind of solidified what I want my first tattoo to be. Yeah. And I think I'm going for the brand of sacrifice, but I, I can't get it on my neck. Join me, brother. Join me with the brand of sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, I can't get it on my neck, though, because if I go into a courtroom and they see that I've got this kind of bloodied looking, because I want it to look like it's just been freshly put onto my neck. Yeah. Like, freshly put onto me, uh, so I can maybe have like a little bit of singe, a little bit of blood dripping off or something like that. I can't get that on my neck, because, you know, and courtroom just goes, oh, this man's a ruffian, I'm not, I'm, he's not going to represent me. So I'm probably going to go and get it on the, the right uh, tricep. Because I've got mine on my left chest. If you use on your right chest, we can titty bump and bump our brands of sacrifice. <laughs> oh, or we could, you could tricep bump. You could, you could bump your, you could shoulder me in the chest. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, we'll workshop. We'll work on it. But uh, right, uh, I would ask you to pick uh, a new topic, but I think now is a good time to go and take a quick break, so that I can walk some four-legged friends. Uh, and then we'll be back with our last couple of last couple of topics Definitely. for this best of episode. All right. So for our next segment, I'm gonna pick game. And uh, do you mind if I go first? Yeah. Why not? Why not? Uh, right. So I'm picking a weird one, and that's kind of deliberate because I haven't played a lot of video games this year because most releases have been kind of screwed by COVID, and there's a lot of games that are in progress or have been released kind of, um, and then the pre- only real game I've released or played from 2021 is Back for Blood, and I've really only played that one time through, so I can't really say this is the best game of the year. Whereas I feel more comfortable promoting something a bit different, just to give people an opportunity, and it's a game I really enjoyed, so it might as well be my game of the year. And that's a game called Milo and the Magpies. Now, this is a really small, niche game that I discovered through a YouTuber, um, mm-hmm. I think it's Giuseppe, who made a video about just games that have no players on Steam. And this was in there, and he said this was probably the best, most polished game he played. Now that's because most of the other games he played were crap. However, Battle of the Magpies is a genuinely very fun uh, point-and-click puzzle solver, which is not something I normally play. I'm normally more first-person shooter, maybe a bit of uh, tactic strategy or a bit of fantasy game, something along those lines. So, sitting down to play a point-and-click adventure, I was kind of dubious, but the game cost me less than a pound, and the total playthrough was like an hour long. Not a lot of investment in time or money, but at the same time, I got a really good experience out of it, and I wanted to really just highlight something that most people wouldn't play. So on Steam, Milo and the Magpies, for like, it was on sale, uh, half price, from £1.64, which I'm guessing is like $2.30, down to £84, which, yeah, I'll, I'll pay that for an hour of gameplay, why not? Um, Yeah, I wanted to highlight it because it's a Dutch game. I don't play mm. many Dutch games, but yeah, this is somebody's first game, and you're literally just playing a game where you solve a route for a cat to go through a garden to the other side of the wall. Like, he just has to cross the garden while he's being attacked by magpies, figuring out how different uh, things that are there in the frame will get you past certain issues with, like, certain obstructions, certain things that are blocking your way. One thing I'll say for this, uh, the art style is beautiful. It, is, it looks like hand-painted, which I really enjoy. It's that very kind of classic European painting style. I'm like, okay, that, that reminds me of something that was hanging up in the home. And having like playing in that environment was very kind of trippy and fun for me. 
and that and the musical background uh like it's all mostly piano based there's mm-hmm. a playlist for all the music for this game and it's just gorgeous you just have it on casually just kind of chill back and relax and listen to just kind of dainty piano music for a while but uh you can actually just play as the or you play the music as the game is going on it's very nicely looped and it's very well balanced with the like the audio level isn't that obtrusive along with other things that are going on in the game normally you get something that's too loud or too uh too quiet but this, i thought it was quite nice uh yeah so the game definitely rewards attention to detail let's put it that way there's some stuff you see or some stuff you could could see and miss because you're not paying attention to the right place at the right time is kind of forgiving uh there's only so many like you basically have to brute force your way through the options of what's there what pr- what problems there are and what solves the problems but you could figure all this out yourself and as a a standard run through the game definitely i'd recommend it if nothing else you really have next to nothing to lose for 84 pence and an hour of your time but i really enjoyed yep. it my and the magpies my and the magpies all the other sticking with the the m because uh, again i picked two games because one of which I played to death when it came out, and there's another one that has just got its hooks in me completely to the point where I'm stuck at the final boss. Right. But even at that, I still have a smile on my face because it's it's genuinely it's a a game that I last played. I played its a prequel in high school. At first, it came out in high school. However long ago that fucking. Uh, yeah, I don't think about that, buddy. Yeah. Not safe to years. go there. I think it was like 17 years or something when, but when that game came out. But uh, first on my list is uh, Monster Hunter Rise for the Nintendo Switch. Uh, both these games are for the Switch. So uh, the reason why Monster Hunter Rise beat out games like Resident Evil Village is that I kept going back to Monster Hunter Rise to keep playing more of it until I hit that wall where I physically couldn't do anything else without, you know, backup. And uh, it just it got it hooks me completely. I loved the the mobility. I loved what the new things that they did to your hunter. I loved all the little tweaks and changes that they put in the game, all the little quality of life changes that made it a more a, a more fun to play game than even say Monster Hunter World, which is arguably a better game. But I had more fun with Rise because you could just do more things with your hunter in Rise and your your uh, companions, your uh, your Palico, which is your little cat companion, and or your Palamute, which is a big sort of like hunting dog thing. You could do more with those uh, companions, those uh, partners. And I mean, the choice in uh, armors and the choice in weapons let you down a wee bit because it was a smaller Switch title. But the new monsters that were put in there were genuinely fucking amazing. And uh, even to the point where now I'm still trying to get groups together to play through more of Monster Hunter, but I don't want to get, you know, a month of Monster Hunter, not Monster Hunter Online, uh, Nintendo Switch Online, just to find out I'm only going to play it for a day. So, uh, I do plan on making a return to Monster Hunter Rise, but there's a few things I need to get out of the way first. <laughs> but uh, even to the point where I'm contemplating getting this uh, the Steam Edition, just so I can keep playing more of it online. The game is just that fun. It's, in my opinion, even though it's about a quarter of the size of Monster Hunter World, it's twice the game that Monster Hunter World is, just because it feels more like a Monster Hunter World, in my opinion, feels like a an MMO with a Monster Hunter skin slapped over it, and I, I never really got into it. Despite how fun I found that game, I never really got into it fully, because there's always that kind of like element of, oh, I'm going to have to pay to play this online, and it's going to feel more like a drag, because there's just so much to fucking do in that game. But Rise, there's just perfect blend of 
you know, here's fun missions to do and here's cool mechanics to do as well. But it kept me coming back and I will I will return to that game eventually. But part two of my game of the year for a 2021 is another Nintendo Switch game. But this one is Metroid Dread, uh, which is the latest in the mainline Metroid series. So you've got the mainline Metroid series starting at one, then you've got like the yeah, it starts Metroid one, then the Metroid Prime series kicks in, then it goes Metroid Two, uh, Super Metroid, and all those other games. Um, Metroid Dread is Metroid Five, which is the current or the next game in the Metroid timeline, and it picks up pretty much right after where Metroid Fusion left off. Got that kind of you know, Samus is different, shits happened to in the previous games, but you still get the same. You know, whatever Metroid could be boiled down to, you get that in Metroid Dread. And more cool shit to boot, because Samus is probably the strongest that she's ever been, but so is everything else around her. And uh, fucking love this game. Uh, I was playing, uh, I was playing Kingdom Hearts on the PS5, and I was also playing uh, Shin Megami Tensei 5 on the Switch. I put both of those games down to play Metroid Dread, and I did not regret it one iota. It's just such a fun fucking game, and. Samus herself has just become such a badass and so jaded towards fighting enemies. She just kind of acts a bit blasé about it. It's kind of funny to watch. She fights a, a mainstay boss in the game and she's sitting there with the gun ready, trained on him. And then she realized, she realizes what enemy it is and she just kind of relaxes completely and just goes, oh, it's you. Takes a relaxed battle stance against him. Pretty cool to see. I do like that you have two of the most powerful, well, you have a gaming PC, you have a PS5, but you... Both still play picks, Switch. <laughs> yeah, both picks for the game of the year are Switch, which is a handheld console that could also be docked to be a kind of TV console as well. But it just something about those games sticks out to you more than yeah. anything on one of the most powerful consoles on the planet and something with the most limitless potential on the planet, which is a PC. And yeah. that's, that's very that's the thing. Even dating back to the PlayStation Two, what sold me on a great console is its is its games. Uh, PlayStation 2 was the weakest of the, the trio at the time. Xbox being the strongest, the GameCube being second place. PlayStation 2 was the weakest of the hardware, but it had such an impressive game catalogue, it leaped well ahead of the Xbox and was on par, in my opinion, with the GameCube because the GameCube was my personal favourite out of the three and had some fucking amazing stellar titles on it. But the PS2 just had that pedigree of games on it that made people think, nah, PlayStation 2 still got a place in my heart, man. And that's that to me is the Switch. The Switch is just such a strong catalogue of games. It's, the fact that I don't have an Xbox Series X yet, fine, because I've got the Switch and I've got so much to play on the Switch. It doesn't really matter. And they're all good, good games. Really, really, really well made games. So, yeah, I do get, I, I do get. That's quite funny. I have a pretty good gaming PC. Well, I have access to a really good gaming PC, and the PS Five is just monolith of a console, but I still keep going back to the Switch. So I think it's time we round things up with our series of the year. Um, yep. I'm going to jump in here and do mine first, because mine's a bit easier, because we're not going to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> we have yeah. planned to talk about The Witcher Season 2 in a special standoff episode, however, to make things a bit more interesting. Um, my choice is The Witcher Season 2, but I am rushing ahead to the audiobooks. I'm listening to them all at max speed. Uh, much to the confusion of everyone who knows me. And they're like, wait, you you finished book three yesterday, you finished book four today, are you sleeping? And I'm like, no. <laughs> um, so I'm going through the Witcher audiobooks right now to compare, because one thing I want to know is with an adaptation, 
How are they setting themselves up in contrast to the books and also the books finale? Is there anything they're doing in the series that would fuck over the like the actual like books themselves? Like the, the ending there might be different, uh, as per say Game of Thrones, where they had to take steps to make sure that the ending of the show was the same as the ending of the books. Now I don't think this will be the case, given that Game of Thrones uh, was still being written and is still being written even after the show is finished. Um. And the Witcher uh, production crew are all fans of the Witcher books, which have finished, and finished like twenty years ago. I'm gonna say. Yeah, they've been gone for a while. And uh, I mean, there was one. There was a, sh- a series. Of, it was like a short story book that he put out at the end to explain uh, the gap the between a couple season of books. storms. I have that as well. I'm going to finish that before we do the episode about the Witcher season two. But one mm. thing that I think is very interesting. I want to see how the story ends itself, and then how we're setting up for that in the show. So, The Witcher Season 2 will be getting its own special episode, but uh, yeah, that is my pick of the show f- uh, for sure for the year, because it's got me into the world of The Witcher, like, in depth. I just, I like, there's plenty to enjoy in the show of The Witcher Season 2, especially if you like the show, like the, the franchise in general, mm. but I'm so compelled to go further into that world. I'm binging the audiobooks, I've watched the uh, the Studio Mirror movie, uh, The Nightmare of The Witcher. Um, oh, the I'm, Nightmare of the Wolf. Nightmare of the Wolf, yeah. With uh, Vesemir. Yeah, which is interesting. I like it. It's pretty good. Um, wasn't my pick <laughs> pick for movie of the year for a reason. Um, most of them was like, okay, cool. Who gives a shit? Um, action scenes were great for that movie, but other than that, I just uh, <laughs> the one thing that's really understated about the Witcher series is it's quite funny, but not in an overstated. We talked about this last time we did an episode where we talked about the the Weed Knight bullshit. Yeah. This is before Weed Night Bullshit, but it's still funny, and it's based on character dialogue and being quirky. And it's more yeah, to do it's with... It's a dry, sarcastic humour, more than a just out-and-out yuck. Yeah. Uh, once a book, at least, or at least once every couple of chapters, Geralt sits down with someone else and just has a conversation that starts with that person kind of bullying Geralt for being a dumb witcher who walks around the woods stabbing monsters, and then Geralt flipping it on them and being like, actually, fuck you. And it's it's great entertainment and they do that very well in the witcher tv series but it's kind of they've deliberately understated it to avoid seeming kind of cocky in a way um and then the witcher uh nightmare of the wolf does it totally the other way where it's like no he is being a snarky asshole but it's not Geralt as a character so i kind of have to give it the pass in a weird way mm-hmm. um but yeah i really enjoyed season two as it has flung me into the the deep uh like the deep well that is the witcher franchise and I'm yep. looking forward to even playing the video games. I got them all on Steam sale for like six quid. So yeah, I'll play 120 hours of gameplay for six quid, if you know, if I have to. Um, and then, yeah, the only thing I really have to complain is that some of the CGI backgrounds look like dick. Uh, like really, really bad backgrounds for some of the stuff. Uh, but I hate... Yeah, I mean, when you've, got a, when you've got a show like A Witcher that gets so much right, you kind of have to let certain things slide. Yeah, and you can tell they saved the money in the backgrounds and put it into a practical set, which I'm always a fan of. Uh, but like seeing Kaer Morin as like an actual place and him having it look real is so much more important than them getting like a vista right. Like I'm so much yeah. more engrossed in the importance of Kaer Morin than just some building in the middle of Nilfgaard. Like I don't give a shit, and I'm willing to let that slide because the show and the the story is so much bigger than just like a vista. Or a CGI generated background. So, 
yeah, I would recommend The Witcher Season 1 and 2. We talked about Season 1 before, and we'll be talking about Season 2 very shortly. But yeah, highly recommend it as my show of the year. Uh, one thing I will say uh, before I go into my show of the year, don't let how Geralt interacts with people in The Witcher games influence how you think he should act in the TV show, because you need to remember that in the games, you influence how he acts. It's not how Geralt himself would act. Because I got into a, a discussion with some people they were saying, I was watching Witcher Season 2, Geralt doesn't really act like Geralt. And that, my response was, you've only played the games. How do you know how Geralt acts? Yeah. Geralt uh, in the show is, it... is kind of, is quite true to Geralt in the books. He's not yeah. He's not as talkative. Um, although I will say, I do like the way they solved, there's a weird controversy in the uh, the English fans of the Witcher books, in that uh, Yaskier is, mm-hmm. uh, da- is referred to as Dandelion, or Dandelion, in the audiobooks for the uh, the English series, mm-hmm. so it and it actually flipped because it went from Dandelion from book or from the short story first book to Dandelion in the second short story book into the main series, and I'm just listening to Baptism by Fire and it flipped mm-hmm. back to Dandelion again. No, what the shit? It's a weird thing, and I like the fact that they sidestepped it by translating it back to the original Polish, which is Yaskier, which actually does yeah. mean Dandelion, and. I think with dandelion and dandelion, it's probably just a pronunciation thing. It's probably yeah. not anything to worry about. But uh, as time is marching on, I'm going to come in with my series of the year, which similar to your, similarly to your pick, got me into reading the source material. And I am going to go with the Invincible animated series on Amazon Prime. A fine uh, choice, sir. Yeah, uh, we gushed lyrical about this show, the animation, the story, the the kind of holy shit, shit your pants moments with uh, Mark and Omni Man, like with him, his dad literally using him as a battering ram <laughs> to kill hundreds of people. Use them as a battering anyway. ram against a train. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like you with the Witcher books, I was given the the opportunity to delve into the source material. I got the first uh, set of collected volumes for my Christmas. The only problem is there's twelve of the fuckers. And they're about 30 to 40 quid each, or I could get the compendium books, for 50, which are 50 to 60 quid each. What I'm thinking I might do is I might just get the first two ultimate books, then start getting compendiums because uh, I think they work out roughly the same cost wise if I'm buying half as many, but for, you know, between 40 and 50. But uh, no, Invincible was just, uh, again, it was another Amazon Prime, Seth Rogen produced. Uh, superhero show, so you kind of think, well, well, they're going to cancel it like they did Preacher, like they did The Tick, like Amazon do with so many fucking shows, but Invincible seems to have the staying power because the fans flocked to this. It had uh, the backing of Robert Kirkman, who created uh, Invincible. He handpicked all the actors in it. Uh, He changed a couple things as necessary, and to be honest, I kind of prefer how Amber acts in the series as opposed to how she acts in the books. In the books, she's kind of a bit bleh, but they, they do something to her, her character in the show that makes her a bit better. And uh, apart from that, the, it's kind of one-to-one from the books to the show. It's changed a couple of things just to, for pacing issues, but it's pretty much one-to-one. Uh, so you could, if you're watching the series and you're up to date with that, you're kind of up to date to issue 13 of the books. And um, but like yourself, I want to skip ahead and I want to see what's happening next. I want to see what happens with uh, Viltrum. I want to see what fuck Viltrum is. I want to see all the cool shit that happens therein. So, 
I'd highly recommend that you watch and read Invincible by Image Comics. Written by the guy who also wrote The Walking Dead. So it's going to be good for a while, as long as studios don't get a hold of it and start making it weird. <laughs> Look, I've had conspiracy theory level nonsense about what went on with The Walking Dead. I don't think they'll fuck him over. I we, think people have learned. <laughs> we live and pray that no one fucks over the Invincible franchise because it's a fun series. It's yeah. It handles the teenage uh, superhero trope very well. Um, yeah. It's very. It, it's a bit modern, and some people might be turned off by that, but it's worth it for the story. There's some stuff in there that is really interesting in terms of like living as Superman's son, and I, I think I'm assuming that the comic books handle that in a bit more nuanced way than the show did. A little bit, yeah. They don't really. Mark's kind of, he's not as blasé about it in the comics he's not just like he's not like, yeah I've got superpowers he's a bit more careful but even at that he still kind of gets himself into similar situations where he's getting knocked against buildings and crashed through like multi-story car parks and shit like that but he's not as flippant about his powers in the comics whereas in the shows he kind of seems like he's a bit more open with his power use probably not the best way to say it but yeah there's, there's a difference between how he uses his powers in the books and the comics the, the books and the TV show. Probably the best. I mean, his powers being unbreakable and invincible, you know, <laughs> kind yeah. of a hard thing to not show off, you know. He still gets fucked up just as much as you think he does. If you're going from the, the series to the books, you still see a lot of Mark Grayson getting his shit kicked in. Actually, if that's one thing I point out to anyone who's a comic book fan, or like who's not a comic book fan and goes in from like an animation standpoint, Comic books do not give a shit. <laughs> comic books and manga will go incredibly into gore. They don't really have to pass the same censorship laws as like TV shows do, and they just go all yeah. in on the gore. Fantastic, great way to get into a new story. Well, with that said, weird segue, but I think it's time to wrap up the show. As always, just want to say thank you for joining us in the year twenty twenty one for the Jibberfish Podcast. It's yep. been a great saving grace. Um, I joked originally when the show started that this was like kind of a therapy for us. And yeah, we've definitely needed that more than ever. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, I, I hope you're all happy. Uh, you know, things can get better, but things have been okay um, for this year. I think we've done pretty well for ourselves. If you made it this far, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I've been Kong Graham. I've been Dom Anderson. And we've been talking gibberish. <laughs>